0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. How would you answer this question? What is the most important thing about a church? What is the most important thing about a church? Well, I put together a top 10 list of possible answers and here they are. Is the most important thing about a church the style of music in the worship? It has to be alive or passionate or the the worship or debate, traditional or contemporary. Does it fit my preferences or is it something that, that I like? The style of worship. Children's ministry, that's the most important thing about a church. Is it safe? Obviously, we're all about safety, but is it fun? Is it exciting? Is it is it a cool children's ministry? And if, you're, if you don't have children at home, this is real. It's a real temptation. Uh, what about serving opportunities? Is that the most important thing in a church? Is uh, having options about getting involved and ways to plug in, is that the most important thing about a church? Here's one that, that's really deep, the coffee at the church. Uh, does it have the best coffee layout? Does it have coffee to begin with? At least we're there now. We do have coffee now. But is that the most important thing about a church? Number five, what about the preaching? The quality of the pastor's preaching, the excitement, the way it makes me feel when I leave. The faithfulness to scripture. Number six, community and fellowship. Will I make friends? Are there people relatively my age? Can I can I get together with other people? Is there a sense of belonging in the church? Is the most important thing about a church its facility, its location, its size, its upkeep, its its lights, its its decor i I don't know clearly you can tell that one's not as big of a priority for me number eight uh community outreach is that the most important thing about a church how we're reaching our community how we're doing different things to bring people in what about service times does the church have a convenient time that fits with my schedule and that is uh, accessible to me number 10 what about doctrine what the church believes, or a specific denomination? Are any of these things the most important thing about a church? Now, all these things that I just mentioned, this list of top 10, I've heard people talk about. Okay, the coffee one, jokes aside. But the other ones, people people look at those things, and it matters to them about service times, and it matters to them about the cool children's ministry, or it matters to them about ways to get involved. And and some of these things that I mentioned are extremely important, like doctrine and preaching. Some are less important, certainly like the quality of coffee or convenient service times. But none of these things are most important. What is most important? The most important thing a church must be is Christ-centered Because when a church is Christ-centered, everything else that the Scriptures command us to do and to be falls into place. And this is not a new emphasis. This is not like I'm speaking new truth to you this morning. This was the Apostle Paul's aim as well. Paul's ministry revolved around Christ. In Colossians 1, 24 through 29, our text today Paul explained his ministry. He's he's telling this church that he's never met what his ministry is all about. And he tells them that the heart of his ministry is not a method or a, a program, but a person. The heart of his ministry was Jesus. And what's really interesting to me as I study this text is he proves this not in just what he says... But in how he said it, he structured these verses in such a way that Jesus is the center of the paragraph. He began in verse 24 by talking about his suffering. And then he shifted to the commission that he received to fulfill the word of God. And then he talks about the mystery. And at the center of the paragraph is the declaration that the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he's proclaiming this mystery in verse 28 and carrying out the commission. And then in verse 29 telling the people about his toil and struggle for them. And this structure is, is actually embedded in many places in Scripture. It's called a chiasm, from the Greek word meaning X. So the structure unfolds toward a center point. I guess it would be this way for you. I'm doing it backwards. It unfolds toward a center point, and then the, the second half of the paragraph reflects the same ideas in reverse order, as you can see. And this was a way to draw attention to the most important thing. And so what Paul is doing is he's arranging this paragraph to show that his ministry is Christ-centered. And this has to be our heart as well. If we could describe our church with only one phrase, I can't think of a better one than to say Christ-centered. Well, what about glorifying to God? Well, Christ is the visible representation of the glory of God. So when we exalt Christ, we exalt his glory. What about a Bible-preaching church? Well, Christ, as we will see, is the, the subject of all of our preaching. What about a, a church that, that loves people? Well, we can't love people if we don't love Christ, the first two great commandments. Christ-centered, I think, is the best description of, a, of a, what a church ought to be. As we saw earlier in Colossians 1, Jesus is the head of the church, He's preeminent over all things. And so our church must focus on him. And the word center means that he is at the core. We we revolve even around him. Our entire ministry must revolve around him. So I want to raise a simple question today as we work through this passage. What does a Christ-centered ministry look like? This is one of those words that in the last 20 years has gotten really, really popular. If you just Google Christ-centered, you'll find thousands and millions of hits. It's a trendy word. It's almost a buzzword. It's almost overused, truthfully, just like gospel-centered and organic discipleship. They're both overused. They're really good phrases, but we don't want to weaken the meaning of this phrase. Obviously, a Christ-centered ministry will focus on Jesus, but Paul shows us three key ways that a Christ-centered ministry does this. In verses 26 and 27, we see the first way that a Christ-centered ministry focuses on Jesus, and its focus is on Christ as the subject of its preaching. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says at the end of verse 25, if we back up to one phrase, to fulfill the word of God, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A Christ-centered ministry focuses on Christ as the subject of its preaching. Well, why? Why should we make Jesus the subject of our preaching? These, three, these two verses contain three reasons. And in verses 26 and 27, there's a word that shows up kind of over and over again. It's the word Mystery. Paul points to Jesus as the revelation of God's mystery. Now, mystery is not a literary genre like it is today. When the Bible talks about mystery, it's not thinking about Agatha Christie. A mystery, a biblical mystery, was a truth about God and about his plan of salvation that was previously hidden in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New Testament. What was previously hidden is now made known. And in the last phrase of verse 25, Paul states that the purpose of his ministry is to fulfill the word of God to make this mystery fully known. Well, the question that arises is then, what is this mystery? And if you know the answer, don't, don't spill the beans. What is the mystery? Paul inductively leads us to the right answer with four phrases. What is this mystery? Well, the mystery was hidden in the past. It's been hidden from ages and from generations. It was concealed from Old Testament believers. Across the ages, throughout the generations, this grand truth was hidden. But now the mystery is revealed to the saints. So the saints are holy ones. They're the ones who believe in Jesus. That's you and I. We have received this mystery. Believers in Jesus know what was previously unknown and unknowable. The mystery is also full of glory and is a wealth of riches. Look at the description of this. To make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul sometimes, like he does here, heaps up words upon words to to kind of overwhelm us a little bit. And that's what he's doing. The mystery, whatever it is, is full of glory. The mystery is a wealth of riches. And this this builds anticipation about this mystery. If it's this glorious, we want to know about it. And this mystery is given to all people. It's located among the Gentiles. So whatever it is, it's not restricted to the people of Israel. It's for all people. And after all this buildup, Paul finally tells us what the mystery is, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. The Lord Jesus is the revelation of God's mystery, which means that he is the central figure of the Bible, the hero of the plan of salvation. Jesus was hidden in the past, predicted by the prophets, foreshadowed by many things in the Old Testament. But as Hebrews 1 says, in these latter days, he has been revealed to the saints in vivid color. Jesus is a treasure full of glory and a wealth of riches given to all people. And the entirety of the word of God points to Christ. He's the main character in the grand story. The person who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament and who will come again to rescue us. So when we look at the Bible, we have to recognize that the Bible isn't just a collection of 66 different books. It's one story with one main character, with one message of redemption, with one goal to bring God glory. Whenever we open the pages of Scripture, whether it's from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the Bible is ultimately a story about Jesus, how he created the world, how he rescued humanity from our sin, how he has built the church and is building the church now, and how he will come again someday to make all things new. Every time we open the pages of Scripture, we're reading a part of Christ's story. So he's the subject of our preaching because he's the focal point of redemption, the hero of of the redemptive story. But also there's a second reason, because he saves anyone who comes to him by faith. He saves those who are united to him. And that's what the phrase Christ in you means. And this little phrase Christ in you is, is tricky. So let's pause here for a moment. It seems that this is saying that Jesus indwells believers and lives inside of us. Christ is in you. But if you stop and think about it, that doesn't quite make sense. How can Jesus be physically dwelling in us? The scripture teaches us that it's a different member of the Godhead that indwells believers. It's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has been given to us, 2 Corinthians 1.22, As the down payment of our salvation and indwells us to seal us for glory. So there are some who would interpret this tricky phrase, Christ in you, to kind of stretch it to say that this is the spirit of Christ who dwells in you. And that kind of sort of works, but I think there's a better explanation. A better explanation, I think, is that this refers to a believer's union with Christ. At salvation, a believer and Jesus are united together. This is the predominant image of what salvation is in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament. All the things that Jesus has earned by virtue of his perfect obedience and sacrificial death are now ours by virtue of our union with Christ. Marriage pictures this. Just like a wife takes the name of her husband and the property of each spouse becomes one another's, so also our union with Christ means that we receive his name. We're called Christians, aren't we? And we become joint heirs with him, fellow heirs of all the blessings God has for us. Back in Verses 12 and 13, we we have an inheritance laid up for us, not because we have done so many great things to earn it, but because of our relationship, our union with Jesus. The New Testament uses the phrases in Christ or in Jesus or in him over 100 times. And these phrases are viewing our relationship to Jesus from the believer's perspective, focusing on what Benefits we receive. Now, Paul will occasionally reverse the phrase like he does here, and he'll say, Christ in us. He does this in Romans 8, 9, and 10. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So there's another verse that teaches the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. But look at verse 10. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 9 clearly says that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Romans 8.10 uses the same exact Greek phrase as our text, Colossians 128, when it says Christ in you. So this little phrase, Christ in you, views the relationship of Jesus and the believer from Christ's point of view. What is Paul emphasizing here? He is emphasizing how Jesus has been given to the Gentiles. How Jesus is a light not just for the people of Israel, but a salvation to all people. Jesus is united to anyone who believes and brings to them the hope of glory. That's the beauty of this mystery. Is that when we come to faith in Christ, we've been brought near? We don't have to be ethnic Israelites to receive salvation in Jesus. And when Christ is united to a believer, the believer receives all the benefits. And the benefit that Paul says here is that we receive the hope of glory. This is the third reason we make Jesus the subject of our teaching and preaching. Because he's our hope. This confidence that we have of entering heaven, this assurance that that we can rest in our hearts and trust the Lord is because of our union with Christ. It's because we belong to him now. It's because of what he has done for us. It's not because someday we'll get to heaven and God says, all right, why should I let you in? And you can bring out your resume of things you did here on earth. We saw in our Sunday school hour that there's nothing a man can give in exchange for his soul. And yet when we stand before God someday, The hope that we have of entering to heaven is sure and confident because our hope is Jesus. And Jesus is alive. And so therefore, as Peter says, our hope is alive. So why should we make Christ the content of our preaching? Three reasons. You see them on the screen. He's the hero of redemption. The one who saves us from our sins. And he gives us the hope of eternal life. So let's apply this to our church This is why our church is a teaching church. We focus on Jesus by teaching the scriptures because Jesus is the word of God, the revelation from God. There are a couple things maybe that you've heard us talk about in the past, but I want to put in front of you here. We hold to an expositional philosophy of teaching and preaching. That's a big word. So what does that mean? That means that we study the text of Scripture to correctly interpret it and then apply it to the hearers. And our study in Colossians has been a good example of this. We've gone line by line, verse by verse, walking through what the text says, what it means, and then how it applies. And this philosophy, this expositional philosophy, helps us to systematically work through the Scriptures. Because if you've read through the Bible, you know that there are parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable. There are parts that are convicting, aren't there? There are messages that I would prefer not to preach, like the one last week on suffering for the gospel. But because we're walking through the text, if I skip a couple of verses, people are going to say, why did you skip those two verses? (laughs) We preach what the word says, and if we don't follow this model of preaching through the scripture, it would be very easy for me to preach what I like to preach or to avoid what's uncomfortable. That's why we have this philosophy. And that spills over into the next point. We teach and preach the full counsel of God. Paul said this about his own ministry in Acts 20, verse 27. For I have not shunned, I've not shied away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We don't leave parts of Scripture out, and we don't focus only on what we like. Now, if I were to come down there and ask you what your favorite book of the Bible is or your favorite character in Scripture, you probably have one, and that's okay. But if, if I only preached my favorite, you would get really sick of the book of Hebrews because there are 65 other books of the Bible that God inspired. We are to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And if we don't, we produce stunted believers. A basketball player who only shoots will struggle to dribble or pass or defend or have the endurance to run up and down the floor. So, so a, a well-rounded basketball player practices those things. And yes, I recognize when you get to the professional level, you have specialties and nuances, but most of the time, every professional basketball player knows how to dribble at least. Believers have to be well-rounded in their faith, and that only comes by teaching the full counsel of God. That's why we've started to read through different books of the Bible in our, in our services. We read through 1 John. We're reading through Ruth. Why? Because we just picked a random book. You know, we put names on the blackboard and kind of you know, covered our eyes and, and one of us pointed to it. No, we're trying to read the whole counsel of God to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And over time, we will expose our hearts to all parts of Scripture. The Sunday school hour is a big part of this as well because as you can see, by the pace of our preaching, my preaching in the morning service, we're working through this book. We'll probably get to another book sometime in August or so. But if this was the only thing that we were doing, we would have, we have a gap in our knowledge. And so the Sunday school hour helps to round that out. At 9 30 every week, we gather to study the Bible together in classes. And we're working through Mark's gospel right now. And this is an area that I would love for more people to, to attend, more people to be involved in. In fact, only two-thirds of our church come to Sunday school. That's 33% that don't come, and that, I'm sure there are various reasons for that. But I would love for more people to come and, and to study the Word of God and to be taught the Word of God so that you will grow, so you will develop in your faith. And in verse 28 here in a moment, we'll see another reason to study the word, but I won't get ahead of myself. Well, when we're teaching the Bible and when we're proclaiming Christ, what do we focus on? Well, there are four categories that that we think about when we teach. Bible literacy seeks to understand the content and basic teaching of the Bible. So we're walking through the text of Scripture. You need to know what the Bible says. If you read the Bible in your personal devotions, this is what you're doing. You're, You're gaining understanding about what The story of Scripture says. Doctrine are the beliefs that ground our faith. This is what we we come together and gather around. This is what we hold dear. These are our convictions. And there are many major categories of doctrine that we teach on from time to time. Lifestyle teaches us how we live and behave as Christians. Uh, Colossians is a great example of this. So in chapters 1 and 2, we learn the truths of Scripture. And then in chapter 3, Paul applies these truths to our lives. How are we supposed to live as New Testament people? How are we supposed to live as Christ's church? Chapter 3, verse 1, seek the things above. What does it mean to seek the things that are above? Paul's going to give you many commands and make it very clear. You put off this type of behavior. You put on this type of behavior. You act this way. This is the attitude you should have. This is how you relate to one another in the home. This is how you relate to one another at church. So lifestyle teaches us how we live and behave. And then worldview teaches us how our Christian faith is applied to the culture we live in. Because our our Christian faith is not blind loyalty. It makes sense. It's defensible. It explains to us where we came from. It tells us why we're here. It shows us what's right and wrong. It, it 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 tells us who we even are, what's our identity, and it tells us where we're going. We need these answers from the Word of God because these are the questions that our world is asking today. Our world is wondering where are we going? Where do we come from? Why am I here? Who am I? If anything, over the last five years, we've seen. People take that who am I question in, in ways that we would have never imagined. Well, what's our role? Our role is to teach what the Word of God says. Our role is to teach that the purpose of your life is to bring God glory, that, that you are made in the image of God and you exist for Him. That's why we teach and preach the Word of God. And then ultimately, we submit to the Word of God. It is our final authority. We build our church on the Scriptures in what it says we will do. It's just as simple as that. Now, amid all these benefits, all these reasons why we teach the Bible, there's actually a danger here to be avoided that I want to put in front of you. We can make Jesus a topic of study and not ever develop our relationship with him. Uh, Preacher Vance Havner said this, it is tragic to go through our days making Christ the subject of our study, but not the sustenance of our souls. Because the goal in all of our teaching is to promote spiritual maturity, not just head knowledge. Many Christians equate spiritual maturity to knowing more facts. And so they think that, that acing a test is what makes them more spiritual. I'm more spiritually mature if I know more about the Bible. And that's just not true. Spiritual maturity is not what we know, but who we resemble. Now, you can't resemble Jesus if you don't know Scripture. You have to have some knowledge of the truth. But there are a whole lot of people in our world, and I've read books by them, that know a lot about Scripture more than most of us, and they have no relationship whatsoever to Jesus. Maturity, spiritual maturity, is not acing a test. It's knowing a person. So a Christ-centered ministry doesn't stop with just saying that Jesus is the subject of our preaching. It's not an academic topic of study. It's the very life and substance of our church's growth. How we grow as a church is by growing up into our head, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. That's what verse 28 teaches us. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Now you notice that the first three words of this verse are him we preach. So why do I have this classified under point number two and not point number one? It's because this little phrase is the pivot in this entire paragraph. Paul has just explained why he preaches Christ in 26 and 27, and now he shifts to talk about the goal of his preaching, which we find here at the end of the verse, to help every person grow up into maturity. We could summarize verse 28 in this way. We present Christ to you in all his perfection— so that you will be presented to Christ one day perfect and complete. That's Paul's strategy. So verse 28 begins with the word preach. This is not the normal word for preaching. The the normal word for preaching is the word for heralding or announcing good news. This word means to make known in public, to broadly disseminate. And the word proclaim, I think, best captures this concept because Paul is not limiting Our discussion of Jesus to just the Sunday morning pulpit. Our proclamation of Jesus is far broader than that. Well, how do we proclaim Christ? The rest of this verse gives us, raises and answers two questions. The first half answers how we proclaim Christ. The second half of the verse answers why we proclaim Christ. So let's start with how. How do we proclaim Christ? We do this by warning and teaching with all wisdom. A Christ-centered ministry will warn and teach. These terms point to the negative and the positive side of instruction. To warn is to counsel or to admonish against wrong actions or choices. To teach is to provide instruction in the truth. There are a lot of churches that never warn people. And you can walk in, and they're, they're faithful to Scripture usually, mostly, and you walk out feeling pretty good about yourself. And if you go to these churches week after week, year after year, you start to realize that you can't progress past a certain depth. Why? Because the Christian life is not just saying yes to the right things, but also saying no to the wrong ones. Following Jesus isn't simply saying, how do I walk after him? It's also denying self. Spiritual maturity means that we know what does and does not please Christ. So we warn and we teach. And this warning and teaching is done in all wisdom. This could mean either that we teach in a wise manner, which makes sense. You don't want me standing up here on a Sunday morning just spouting off whatever I think. Or it could mean that we, make, that we aim to make the hearers wise. And that's also true. Our goal is to promote wisdom and maturity in our midst. Well, who are the hearers? Who are we proclaiming Christ to? Well, you, but who's the you refer to? Four times in this verse, Paul uses the word for all or every. Every person needs Christ. Paul's goal was to proclaim Christ to everyone. And so our responsibility is not to walk around and say, well, I'm going to talk to you today and not talk to you and talk to you, Mm, not you. We proclaim Christ to everyone we come in contact with. That's not just preaching, that's witnessing and sharing and and discussing truths of Scripture. Well, why should we do this? The second half of verse 28 answers why. Paul proclaims Christ to present believers to Christ fully mature. Paul wants to present every person perfect in Christ. That's the word that's used. This is the goal of proclamation. We publish news about Jesus. We announce him. We talk about him because knowing Jesus through the scriptures is the primary means of spiritual growth. And the word present here probably refers to the final day when we stand before God. Paul's goal then was that any person who sat under his ministry would stand before God on that day perfect. Now let's let's pause on this word perfect for a moment because this word doesn't have a great English word that captures what it means because when we think of the word perfect we mean totally free from any error or fault. This Greek word has the idea of something fulfilling its intended purpose so that it is completed and therefore flawless. A college degree program terminates with a degree being conferred, which stands for what? The fulfillment of the requirements and the ending of those studies. So the program of study is done, but it's also completed. It's been brought to fruition. Well, what is every Christian's course of study? What are we trying to become perfect in? It's Jesus. Because the Christian life is a relationship to Christ. Our purpose is Christ-likeness. It's to become like Christ. Discipleship is simply the process of learning to live like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus. It's pursuing Christ and being conformed to him in every way. Well, how are we conformed to Christ? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of God transforms you as you gaze on the glory of Jesus. Well, where do we see the glory of Christ? It's through his word, which is why Paul proclaims Christ. And so the preaching and teaching of the church exalts Jesus before you. That that's my goal when I stand up here is not to just talk about cool words, which I do from time to time, or to or to talk about fun illustrations or to add a, sprinkle in a little humor here or there, my goal is that when you walk out, you would say, I saw Jesus today. I met with him, and I walked away changed. When we behold Christ, the Spirit of God transforms us. And it's interesting that Paul says that he does this, and that means that he doesn't stop proclaiming Christ, because this will be continued to to be done. We will continue to do this until every person is perfect in Jesus. A Christ-centered, Bible-preaching local church is so vitally important for your spiritual growth because spiritual growth never stops until you stand before God someday. Our church's mission to know Christ and make him known will never be outdated. Because every day that we exist, every week we walk back in these doors, our mission is to know him and make him known. To see him in all his glory, to become conformed to him, and then to proclaim him to as many other people as we possibly can. Now, every church has to clearly answer this question How do believers grow spiritually? How does a person become spiritually mature? And this text is very clear. Knowing Christ and being conformed to him brings about spiritual maturity. That's why, in addition to, becoming, to being a teaching church, we are a discipleship-oriented church. I'm using big words. Let me explain. We gather to worship and deepen our relationship to Jesus primarily. There are other reasons we come together, but that is our focus We place a strong emphasis on growing because growing to be like Jesus is our goal. So there's a question then that comes from that. If growth takes place as we study Christ, then how frequently are you putting yourself under the teaching and preaching of the word of God? A few minutes ago, I mentioned the Sunday school hour. We teach the Bible there because... It facilitates spiritual growth. We engage with the text of scripture. We see our God. We grow closer to him. And I recognize that many people can't make it to Sunday school because of health uh, or, or, or disability or age or just the situation. Uh, but there are a whole lot of excuses to not show up a little bit earlier. I'm going to pick on one, okay? And I've, heard, I've had people say this to me. So if this was you, I don't remember who you are and I don't want to know who you are, uh, it was probably someone from another church. But I've had people say, well, I can't make it to Sunday school because we have a, a tradition of going out to Sunday morning breakfast. Don't get me wrong. I love breakfast. I went out to breakfast twice this week. It's delicious, all right? But let's, let's put a little perspective on that, shall we? Is eating a great pancake and drinking a great cup of coffee on the same level as knowing the God of the universe and becoming conformed to him? An exercise that I like to do when I'm wrestling with the spiritual decision is ask this question. How will I defend my decision to Jesus when I stand before him someday? How how am I going to explain to him my choices? And that perspective really helps clarify things for me. And... And is it a sin to, to not come to Sunday school? No, okay? It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you want to grow deeply in your walk with the Lord, you've got, to, you've got to engage with Scripture. You've got to study it deeply. And the local church is a huge part of that. The goal of our Sunday school time is to teach Bible literacy, doctrine, worldview, and Christian lifestyle so that you're more conformed to Jesus. And if you're not doing that, you're not engaged in a class, I invite you to come we're not scary. We haven't bitten anybody this year. So come on out. Now, as we think about discipleship, let me shift for a moment. Discipleship in general is a process that happens gradually over time. And I've used this illustration before. I want to return to it again. A helpful way to think about discipleship is to compare it to the growth of a human baby. A newborn baby is totally helpless and needs someone to do everything for them, which, frankly, in the early stages of having a baby, is feed them, change them, and make sure they're not sleeping too much. I No, you always want to let a sleeping baby go. Feed them, change them, protect them. And over time, the baby moves from eating milk, to eating mush, <laughs> to eating solid food. And that's that's the goal, that they would grow stronger and bigger. And eventually, they learn to feed themselves. And there are stages to being a self-feeder, right? The first stage is that mommy or daddy doesn't have to hold the spoon for you, and you can put it in your mouth. That's a, that's a liberating stage, if you don't remember it. Believe me, it's liberating. Then the next stage is they learn, especially little boys, learn to raid the pantry and find the snacks. And now they're feeding themselves, and you're like, you just spoiled your dinner. <laughs> Again. <laughs> And so you start locking cabinets. And and then hopefully, maybe, prayerfully, someday, a young man or young woman learns to make themselves a meal. Some of us graduate to this stage when we get to marriage. I won't tell you who that speaks of. And this, this process of being a self-feeder continues for years until a couple has children of their own. And now they become responsible for this baby. And there's this terrifying moment of like, wow, we have this beautiful child, especially at your first. And what am I going to do? You'll make it. Just breathe. Okay. We are responsible then to feed and care for the infant. And discipleship, I think, plays out in much the same way. It's the process of growing from spiritual infants to self-feeders to feeding others and caring for others. A new believer is like a spiritual infant. They need the local church to feed them and protect them through warning and teaching them in all wisdom. Over time, as they drink the milk of the word on their own, they they start to learn the spiritual basics. They give them a foundation to build their lives on. They start growing up into maturity. And and hopefully soon, they become a self-feeder. And like the analogy. There are stages here. The first step in being a self-feeder spiritually is learning to take truth and apply it to your own life. And you're not reliant on someone else to say, this is how you live. You can read the truth and say, oh, this affects this part of me. Then there's a, there's a, a movement forward where you learn to digest the word of God on your own, to grapple with some of the more difficult passages and doctrines. And hopefully, The goal is that every believer here would learn to study the Bible for themselves and to chew on the meat of Scripture. And eventually, my prayer is that that many people would eventually take part in encouraging someone else's growth. And that can happen in a a ton of different ways. You can meet one-on-one with a younger believer to teach them the basics. You can teach children the Bible. You can study the Bible with another believer. You can teach a small group. There are so many ways that you can then facilitate growth in someone else. And I think that's the normal progression of spiritual growth. So let's look in the mirror for a moment. Where are you in this process? Uh, This week, I talked to a couple who are new believers. They're spiritual infants. It's awesome. That's why we're here. Just like a healthy family produces children, A healthy church has spiritual infants in it. But I don't want them in five years to be spiritual babies still. And what saddens me is that there are many Christians who have been in the church for years, maybe even decades, who are still spiritual infants. They've never progressed to being self-feeders. Have you developed the ability to read and apply the Scripture's on your own or are you totally dependent on a Sunday school teacher or or the morning service here to feed you the word if you've been a self feeder for a while and you can chew on the meat of the word in what ways are you contributing to the growth of other people part of the vision that i have for this church for our church is that we would be known in the community as the place you go to grow every church has a reputation. Have you figured that out yet? If you want to go to the trendy church, you go, I could fill in the blank. If you want to go to the really lively worship church, you go here. If you want to go to the the community action church, you go here. I want our church to be known as if you want to grow, you go here. If you want to walk with God deeply, you come to our church because we engage with the text of scripture. We have a culture of growth and love and discipleship and depth here. And that's only possible, not not just by preaching the word on a Sunday morning, but when all of us together are striving to grow up in the faith. I need you just as much as you need me. In fact, I probably need you more than you need me. Because there are a whole lot of people in our church that could stand up here and preach you the word of God. We need one another to grow. And I can't stress enough the Holy Spirit's role in transforming us. There's a ton more that we could say about this, but remember, 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's the Spirit of God who transforms us into the image of Christ. And discipleship is just one key activity the local church does. I'm Actually, this evening in the evening service, I'm going to teach on the other key pillars of the local church. And as you can tell, this is near to my heart. I, I could spend another day talking about this. I'm not exaggerating. But I know you want to get to lunch at some point here. So let's shift to number three. Finally, a Christ-centered ministry focuses on Christ as the source of its power. Verse 29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Notice all the words that have spiritual sweat dripping off them here. Labor, striving, striving. Also, speaking of sweat, I'm really warm up here. And I'm seeing like dozens of you fanning yourself. It's a little warm, I guess. Labor, striving, working, work. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying that a Christ-centered ministry focuses on Christ as the source of its power. He works hard. He exerts himself. He engages in hard labor. The word strive there comes from the Greek word agon, from which we get the, the English word agony. It means to engage in a contest or to fight, to strive to do something with great intensity or effort. And it's interesting, Paul was accused of many things in Scripture, but to my knowledge, he was never accused of being lazy. He worked hard to proclaim Christ and build believers up in the faith. So we work hard, yet we have to recognize that the power is not ours. The power is Christ's. The last phrase literally reads this way, that Paul labored according to Christ's energy that energizes me in power. Christ's power energizes him. Jesus gave Paul the ability to labor. He empowers us to labor as well. And where does this power come from? This power comes from the Holy Spirit. Once again, the Spirit has a massively important role in in the life of our church. A Christ-centered church will be filled with the Spirit of God. And what Paul is teaching here in verse 29 is the biblical synergy of sanctification. We labor with all our effort, which is admittedly very small, and Christ grants to us his matchless power. He works in us, not for us. Jesus isn't going to take over and do something for you. You have to work, but he gives you the ability to do it. And this proper understanding of our role and God's role prevents us from laziness and passivity on one hand and from self-reliance and pride on the other. Because we have to admit and recognize that we can work as hard as we want, but Psalm one twenty seven one is true. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We work hard, we reach people, we seek to grow, but it's all of Christ. This is what a Christ-centered ministry looks like. Jesus is the subject of its preaching, the substance of its spiritual growth, and the source of its power. And I think all of us probably would say, we want our church to be Christ-centered. And it's easy to say that because it's kind of like bigger than us. But but the reality is that our church will not be Christ-centered if the believers who are here are not Christ-centered. And so the, the final application is very simple. Is Christ the center of your life? idolatry replaces Jesus at the center and revolves your life around something else. And there are many good things to pursue in life, many wonderful things to enjoy, but there's only one glorious thing. There's only one treasure, and his name is Jesus. Would you bow with me as we conclude in prayer? Father, we're challenged by Paul's example, and and this is more of a an informational style sermon to give us a big picture view on what we're doing. But it's very deeply personal as well. That we have to wrestle with making Christ preeminent in our hearts, which means he becomes the center of our lives. That we, in our daily walk, will we'll have something that we serve, something that we worship. And if it's something other than Jesus, we have fallen into idolatry. So please forgive us. May we understand why we need to make Christ the center, and may we take any action steps that are needed to put him back in the place that he deserves. Bless now as we conclude our service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.